Welcome to the Buddha Sasana podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Chisago City, Minnesota. Today's is the first talk on the topic, The Miracle of Samadhi. Samadhi is the meditative state that is described in the early Buddhist texts is almost too good to be true. It's depicted there as a state associated with joy, delight, serenity, and contentment that settles in four stages, the jhanas, through which the cognitive and affective functions of the mind are progressively silenced. Yet it produces, with the guidance of Dhamma, the fruits of clarity, insight, knowledge, and vision of things as they are, intuitive responsiveness, and ultimately liberation. Moreover, samadhi makes its appearance often, spontaneously, naturally, and effortlessly. The early texts tell us this. Samadhi is almost too good to be true. In these talks, we'll see for ourselves how samadhi is described in the early texts, particularly with respect to the conditions under which it naturally arises and with respect to the spiritual fruits it produces. I'll endeavor to explain how samadhi is able to fulfill the functions attributed to it in the early texts and present a natural and coherent explanation of what samadhi is and how it works from the perspective of human cognition, while adhering very closely to the early texts and, I dare say, to practice experience. I hope thereby to contribute a fuller understanding of this remarkable, multifaceted, culminating factor of the Noble Eightfold Path. First of all, let's see how samadhi arises spontaneously. Etymologically, samadhi is derived from sam, together, plus adi, put, and so has to do with gathering or collecting something together. Samadhi is the noun form and can be properly translated as collectedness or composure, though most people know it as concentration. Samadhi hati is the verb composes, and samahita, its past participle. I'll generally use samadhi untranslated in this discussion since the Pali is widely known in English and use inflections of compose for non-nominal parts of speech. We cannot talk about samadhi separately from jhana. Etymologically, jhana is the jaran form of the verb jayati, apparently used before the Buddha to denote almost any contemplative or meditative activity. 
The Buddha also uses this term broadly, informally, in the conventional sense, but more significantly in the sense of the fourfold jhana, which seems to have been novel in his teachings and which the Buddha equates with samadhi, such that there is no samadhi independent of the four jhanas in the early texts. In this role, jhana is generally untranslated in English. Many of us learn as beginning meditators a special technique to induce a meditative state. Typically, we pick a meditation object, like the sensation of the breath, a kachina, or a visualized image, fix our attention right there and sustain it there for a while. Although this settles the mind and produces a profound experience, there is almost no hint of the employment of such techniques in the early texts. This may be surprising. Instead, in the early texts, we repeatedly find a natural transition into samadhi from some underlying condition, apparently unassisted. Monks, for a virtuous person, one whose behavior is virtuous, no volition need be exerted. Let satisfaction arise in me. It is natural that satisfaction arises in one who is virtuous, one whose behavior is virtuous. It is natural that joy arises in one with satisfaction. It's natural that delight arises in one who is joyful. It's natural that the body of one with delighted mind is tranquil. It's natural that one who is tranquil in body feels pleasure. It's natural that the mind of one feeling pleasure is composed, that is, in samadhi. The arising of samadhi while practicing remembrance of the triple gem is likewise attested in similar forms. When a noble disciple recollects the Buddha, on that occasion his mind is not obsessed by lust, aversion, or delusion. On that occasion, his mind is simply straight, based on the Buddha. A noble disciple whose mind is straight gains inspiration in the meaning, gains inspiration in the Dhamma, gains joy connected with Dhamma. When he is joyful, delight arises. For one with a delighted mind, the body becomes tranquil, one tranquil in body feels pleasure. For one feeling pleasure, the mind becomes composed, that is, in samadhi. You should develop this recollection of the Buddha while walking, standing, sitting, and lying down. You should develop it while engaged in work and while living at home in a house full of children. Notice that in each of these passages, we begin with some recognized Buddhist practice, then the same series of antecedent states unfolds before samadhi blooms. The series is found often in the suttas. Practice leads to joy. Joy gives rise to delight. 
Delight gives rise to tranquility. Tranquility gives rise to pleasure. And pleasure gives rise to samadhi. In some texts, only two of these antecedent factors are mentioned. Practice gives rise to delight. Delight gives rise to tranquility. And tranquility gives rise to samadhi. We find the same stepwise unfolding of samadhi in the context of learning dhamma through group or private recitation. In whatever way he experiences inspiration in the meaning and inspiration in the Dhamma, as he does so, joy arises in him. When he is joyful, delight arises. For one with a delighted mind, the body becomes tranquil. One tranquil in body feels pleasure. For one feeling pleasure, the mind becomes composed, that is, in samadhi. The seven factors of awakening provide the best-known example of the same series of antecedent states leading to samadhi. According to the seven factors of awakening, proficiency leads to investigation of dhammas. Investigation of dhammas gives rise to energy. Energy gives rise to delight. Delight gives rise to tranquility. Tranquility gives rise to samadhi. And samadhi gives rise to equanimity. The practice here is constituted in the first three links, which correspond to the fourth satipatthana, contemplation of dhammas. It's abundantly clear in the early texts that satipatthana is practiced almost always in conjunction with samadhi. These examples show that samadhi is conditioned, but none of its conditions is a specific technique for introducing samadhi. At least some practices give rise to samadhi as an organic result, but each of the practices is undertaken for its own sake, with its own functions independent of samadhi. Likewise, within samadhi, we proceed from one jhana to the next spontaneously. The mind simply lets go of what it's holding on to in one jhana. When it is ready, you don't even have to wish for it. This gives us some insight into the meaning of the following statement. The Buddha awakened to jhana. Awakened, buddha, means figuratively discovered in some contexts. Either way, it suggests that he did not invent jhana, but appropriated something already present in human cognition, ready to arise under certain circumstances. It required no special technique. In fact, this is exactly what is described when, as a young child, he entered the first jhana spontaneously while sitting under a rose apple tree. If samadhi is already a natural faculty, what makes the fourfold jhana uniquely Buddhist? I think the answer is that he refined it. He recognized its potential 
in the process whereby it can bear fruits, and then developed and cultivated it accordingly. He made it an art and a science. Feeding similarly comes naturally to humans, but through development and cultivation we get haute cuisine and table manners. Let's look more closely at the conditions under which samadhi arises. The question we hope to answer is, what are the root conditions that give rise to samadhi? I've been saying practice, Buddhist practice gives rise to samadhi, but this is broad and vague. Do we mean all practices, every time? Can non-Buddhist practices qualify? For instance, could a virtuoso pianist spontaneously enter samadhi? What practice might the bodhisattva have been engaged in under the rose apple tree to give rise to the first jhana? The Buddha gives us a place to begin to answer these questions when he tells us, For For one of right right proficiency, proficiency, right right samadhi springs up. Proficiency here translates sati. I'm careful to avoid translating sati as mindfulness. With proficiency, I hope to restore something close to Rhys David's once apt choice of the word mindfulness to refer to memory applied to purposeful activity in the present. Listen to my related talks on how mindfulness got mislabeled. Right proficiency, samasati, is the factor of the Eightfold Path just prior to right samadhi. Now, right proficiency is potentially associated with every aspect of Buddhist practice. Consider the following passage. And how is right view the forerunner? One discerns wrong action as wrong action and right action as right action. One tries to abandon wrong action and to enter into right action. This is one's right effort. One remembers to abandon wrong action and enter in and remain in right action. This is one's right proficiency. Thus, these three qualities, right view, right effort, and right proficiency, Run and circle around right action. The same statement is made as for action, also for view, resolve, speech, and livelihood. Since right proficiency with its accomplices routinely runs and circles around all of the wisdom and virtue practices, we predict the arising of samadhi in a swath of diverse practice contexts. Here is how we might understand what is happening here. Right proficiency plays an intermediary executive function between right view, which is our understanding of Dhamma, which provides the parameters of the practice, and right effort, which ensures the implementation of the practice. Right proficiency attends to the present circumstances of the practice situation 
framed in terms of the relevant aspects of Dhamma. It is where Dhamma meets practice. But more than that, it fully engages us in the practice to optimize its efficacy. This is why I call it proficiency. This gives samadhi a role in the realm of skilled performance. To see how right proficiency optimizes efficacy through full engagement, we need to look no further than the Satipatthana Sutta. In my related paper, The Satipatthana Method, I point out that the Satipatthana has two levels, method and practice. The method is described in terms of four qualities maintained by the practitioner. Ardent, comprehending, and proficient, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. I argue that this is the basis of right proficiency. Proficiency in its executive function defined earlier, combined with utmost attentiveness, maintaining fully engaged awareness of whatever aspects of Dhamma or situational variables are relevant to the performance of the practice, while excluding all irrelevant distractions. Accordingly, an alternative name for the Satipatthana method is proficiency attentiveness. Now, when proficiency attentiveness is operating optimally with full engagement in the task, the scope of attention should center around a single theme at a given time, reflecting the scope of relevance to the practice task at hand. If attention is scattered, it will no longer be centered on the theme. Instead, much of it will likely be dispersed alongside. And if we're multitasking, there will be multiple themes. The theme will be broad or narrow as the task demands and is not fixed. Different stages of the task or different contingencies may require adjustments to the theme. This brings us to a simple definition of samadhi. Samadhi is one-centeredness of mind. Aha! Here is the very point at which we enter samadhi while we are engaged in right proficiency. Whenever we bring a critical level of optimality to right proficiency, such that attention centers around a single theme, we have entered samadhi, presumably at the first jhana. More on this next week. To learn more about the Rethinking the Satipatthana Project, please go to sitigu.org slash chintita, that is s-i-t-a-g-u dot org, c-i-n-t-i-t-a.